This week on The Perfect Scam. What was it like that first night in jail? What were you thinking? I just couldn't face the whole thing. It was horrible. I mean, uh, just my world, just everything was turned upside down. Welcome back to The Perfect Scam. I'm your host, Bob Sullivan. Today we bring you the story of a man who seemed to have lost everything. His love, his home, all his money, even his freedom. But someone listened to Steve Steele when he hit rock bottom and probably saved his life. Here's our story, The Courage of Steele. It was Christmas Eve, and Steve Steele was in a bad place. Only a few months earlier, he'd lost the love of his life. Struggling to get around with a walker or sometimes a wheelchair, at age 72, he'd accepted live-in help from a caregiver couple. But now, he thinks they're treating him badly. He doesn't understand how badly, not yet. But his situation is bad enough that he drank drain cleaner and tried to commit suicide a few weeks earlier. Back home, but now feeling trapped in a little shed built for him on the side of his property in this small eastern Oregon town of Hermiston, without a thing to celebrate on Christmas Eve. There comes a loud bang that was about to make his life even worse. They kicked open the door of the place where I was living, and they said, you're going to jail. And I said, what did I do? I was really upset at that point. I didn't know what I did. And and anyway, this sheriff deputy came in and said I supposedly attacked Elizabeth. Elizabeth Avila was Steve Steele's live-in caregiver. She claimed that Steve attacked her with his cane and left her with bruises. The deputy believed her their story that I did this and I was uh, taken away to jail. Steve Steele's life has had three acts, at least so far. His first act, growing up in eastern Oregon, where you can almost say he lived in the trees. The place where I was born and raised was right on the edge of the forest, Willow Whitman National Forest. And my dad was a mill worker, logger, farmer. (laughs) And we lived in a little 17-acre farm right against the forest. And so I remember when I was about eight years old going up with my dad when he fell a tree. And I... That's what I wanted to do. As soon as I got old enough, I wanted to get a saw and go up on the hill and be a log cutter. But in the 1970s, after 20 years working in the trees, there was a terrible accident. Yeah, I uh, got crushed between a a rubber-tired skidder and a, a big log. Oh, my God, that sounds terrifying. Well, I thought I was dead. I thought I was dead. And I could hear all the muscles and uh, ligaments and everything ripping in my back. So that was the end of Act One. No more felling trees. But as he recovered, a miracle, Steve says, he prayed a lot and decided he'd spend the rest of his life helping others. So, Act Two. He became an elder caregiver. I was a CNA, a certified nurse's assistant. I went into people's homes and lived right with them and took care of all their needs, whatever they needed. I cooked, I nursed them, I mowed their lawn, I cleaned the house, I did everything. 
took him on medical appointments and whatever was needed. Uh, I bet they were very lucky to have you. Well, I was very lucky to have met all the wonderful people. I, I loved all my people that I took care of. How many people did you live with, do you think, through all those years? Oh, gee, because some of them lasted quite a few years. I would say probably 10, 12. Wow. So that's like 10 or 12 families you had. Yeah. I was kind of like a chameleon. I just kind of blended in and be part of their family. They become my grandparents and I become mm-hmm. their grandchild. I mean, I, I cried at many funerals. I cried at many funerals. Oh, my God. Oh, what a beautiful calling, though. Well, that was my ministry, the way I felt about it. Since I'd become a Christian, I wanted to dedicate my life to helping people. Steve was also lucky enough during Act Two that he found the love of his life. He spent a couple of decades swapping stories and sharing everything with Patricia. She took care of the finances. Steve took care of the patients. And then, in September 2016, another tragedy struck. I was out in the garden one day, and my wife came out of the house and came by where I was at. She said she was going to go to the Hermiston to buy some groceries at Safeways. Well, I quit puttering around in the garden and went in after a while. It seemed like she had been gone a while, and I was sitting in there wondering where she was. I tried calling her phone, but I didn't get no answer. Then all of a sudden, I had a, a knock on the front door, and this gentleman came and he says, I I got some bad news for you. Your wife is in a bad accident. Patricia survived the crash but was badly hurt. Then a series of other health problems complicated her recovery. But even as she was in failing health, Patricia was still taking care of Steve. She left everything she had to Steve in her will, including a $1,000 a month annuity payment, the end result of the car accident. And she started to pester Steve about getting his own caregiver to help around the house in case Patricia wouldn't be able to take care of him anymore. Sadly, she was right to prepare for that. By mid-2016, doctors told Patricia she didn't have long to live. Well, she came home, and uh, she wanted to come home to die, she said. So uh, I needed some help because at that point I was confined to an electric wheelchair, a walker. And so I answered the ad out of the one ad paper. Elizabeth and Pedro Avila had placed that ad and arrived just as Patricia was nearing the end. They showed up and I thought they was real nice. And my wife passed away in about 10 days. They seemed so nice that, uh, you know, I they, I called them when she passed away, tell them, and, and they come over and hug me and all this stuff. Well, they said that after she was gone, they said, oh, we want you to come live at our house because you can be our grandfather. And that begins Act 3. Are you 55 plus? There are many ways your community could use your help. As an AmeriCorps Seniors Volunteer, you can put your skills to work for the causes you care about, whether that's by becoming a companion for an older adult or a foster grandparent for a child, tutoring students, joining a disaster response effort, or fulfilling another interest. Choose how, where, and when you want to volunteer, starting at just a few hours a month. This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit americorps.gov slash 
Your moment today. Brent Smith is Steve Steele's lawyer. After Patricia dies, Steve, who is, uh, I think, 72 or 73 at the time, he has a lot of physical problems. He has to get around with a walker or a wheelchair. So he's got some health problems and he contacts the cleaning service to ask for assistance. And Pedro Avila and Elizabeth Avila come out to his house and help him clean it up. At first, the arrangement seems to work for everyone. Later on, Steve says that Patricia had told him that, you know, he was going to inherit a good amount of money from her because she had written him into her will and that he should find a deserving family to help support. And Steve's a very loving and giving person, and he was very lonely. His longtime partner had just passed away. He was living in this home by himself. And so, you know, it's really both sides are ingratiating themselves to the other. As time goes by, Steve moves to a smaller, not as nice home he also owns a few miles away and lets the Avalas and their family stay in his real home. It was Steve's way of caring for the Avalas, Steve's way of honoring Patricia's wish that he find a family to care for. This is what Steve wanted to do at the time. You know, essentially, Steve loves the Avilas. He's happy to support them, and they are going to care for him, and Elizabeth is going to bring him lunch and that sort of thing. And that's kind of the plan at that point, but it starts to deteriorate almost immediately. There is conflict over the quality of care Steve is getting and over money issues. Within six months, Steve grants Elizabeth power of attorney, and her name gets added to Steve's bank accounts. Elizabeth is in charge of Steve's life now. Elizabeth is providing some care for Steve. He is getting bathed on a somewhat regular basis, and there are some meals coming. He's very frustrated with the the type of care he's getting from Pedro and Elizabeth, and he says things to them about it. So there is some conflict between them. But again, he's completely out of control. Right? He has no control over his own affairs at this point. And there's something else going on. Steve begins expressing romantic feelings for Elizabeth, even writing her love letters. He says she was very flirtatious. Steve's lawyer says the elderly man was experiencing a lot of complex feelings. Steve sometimes would talk about Elizabeth Avila as if she was his long-lost daughter. You know, there was a little bit of delusional thinking happening. Now, Steve's in his 70s, and he has these um, physical problems getting around. And Elizabeth showered Steve with attention, and Steve liked it. And so that becomes part of the story. There are different versions of what else happened between September 2016, when the Avilas met Steve, and Christmas Eve 2017, when Steve hears that knock on the door. But there are pictures of Elizabeth with bruises on her face, and police show up and take Steve into custody. Steve is arrested on Christmas Eve of uh, 2017. He is lodged in the Umatilla County Jail. And on December 27th of 2017, he is indicted by a grand jury on an eight-count indictment, six felonies, two misdemeanors. The alleged crimes are assault in the second degree, unlawful use of a weapon, coercion, menacing, and attempted sexual abuse. The attempted sexual abuse and coercion charges are related to 
Steve in writing propositioning Elizabeth. And so Steve is in the jail. What was it like that first night in jail? What were you thinking? It was horrible. I mean, uh, just my world, just everything was turned upside down. Steve's first visitor is Mara Fergoso, an investigator for the Umatilla County Public Defender's Office. At this point, Steve has no money. That's why he's assigned a public defender. She says he seems really unhealthy and confused. So when we get assigned to a case, we usually see the client within 24 hours of being assigned to it. That's normally me. I usually go out to the jail. I meet the person, go over what the charges are, get basic information like where they live, contact phone numbers, get a brief description of what the situation was or what they're being charged with. Once I get that information, I do a quick report and that gets passed along to the attorney that is assigned to them. And um, this sounds like pretty hard work. I mean, it's probably a lot of times it's probably kind of the stories are sad or depressing and frustrating, right? Well, yes. Um, So they're sad and and it depends on, on the individual. You know, sometimes you have clients that are mad and angry and they don't want to see you or they refuse to talk to you. Obviously, you can't really do anything there. And sometimes you have clients that are upset and, you know, they're crying out of control and it's just kind of difficult. You don't know what you're walking into when you walk in to that visit. But what she walked into that day to meet Steve, well, it struck her as strange right away. When I originally met him, Mr. Steele is older. So when he walked in, it was kind of surprising as to what his charges were and why he was in there just because he was an older fella. If I remember correctly, he walks or walked in with a walker. So somebody that's charged with an assault to charge, it's like, what really happened? And this person needs help with the mobility, right? So talking to him, there was a little bit of a hunch as to, is there something wrong with him? Because he didn't seem to remember what the incident was or what happened. Like he didn't know why he was there. So when somebody doesn't know why they're in jail, sometimes they tell you, I don't know why, and they really do know what happens. But with his case, because he was older, the question was, was it some sort of form of dementia that wasn't diagnosed yet? I mean, what was the issue? But one of your first impressions was, here's a man with a walker. How could he have committed a serious assault? Right. So what's the real story? So when I go in and I see somebody, I'm only given what they're being charged with. I'm not told anything else. I don't know anything else. I don't know. I don't have the police reports. I don't have any of that. So that's why when I go in and I talk to them and I get like that basic information, I get their side of the story. So at the point when I met Mr. Steele is I'm getting his side of the story as to why he's there. So I don't know any details at that point. And it sounds like it was hard to get his side of the story because a lot of what he said was, I don't remember or I don't know, right? Right, right. But the one message she gets from him over and over is, well, if they say I did it, I must have done it. So what did you have by the time you left that first meeting with him? Like I said, basic information that the reason he was in there is that he thought he, from what he was told, is that he had uh, hit Ms. Avila, but he didn't recall it. So he wasn't really sure what happened. One of the things that he said was, well, if she says I did it, I must have. But when I left there, the initial visit, there wasn't anything else. At that point is when we start 
I came back to the office and I'm like, I think we need an evaluation. So she sends Steve for an evaluation by a psychologist. And she starts gathering paperwork on the case, the police report, the power of attorney, the financial records. Meanwhile, as the days go by, Steve starts to feel a little bit better and he's able to talk a little bit more about everything. Yeah, so he was starting to perk up and, you know, we went into more into detail, like, you know, who are these people? Like, how did he meet them? What is it that they did for him? Where was he living then when this incident happened? Because that's also when I found out that he had a different home, but then that they had moved and they were going to all live together. So he was actually in a different location, but the Avilas hadn't moved to this other location. Like he ended up being moved out of his house, you know? And I'm like, it's not sounding like just at that point, when I started talking to him after we got the evaluation is where I'm like, this doesn't sound right. None of this sounds right. None of this sounds right. But what's the real story? Weeks pass. Steve can't pay bail, so he's still in jail and the Avilas still in his home. And Mara still doesn't have medical records from Elizabeth's injuries, so she has to subpoena them. And that's when the criminal case against Steve Steele takes a dramatic turn. On that Christmas Eve, when Elizabeth Avila showed up at the hospital with injuries, she told doctors a very different story than she had told the sheriff's deputies. She had reported that she was in a car accident instead of what she reported to the officer where she was hit with a cane. Meanwhile, county property records came in and showed that Steve had actually transferred ownership of his two homes to Elizabeth. In fact, the second property transfer was completed just a few days before the alleged assault. And there was something else. Remember that annuity that Patricia had left for Steve to make sure he had a way to take care of himself? The cash value had been withdrawn, all $120,000. And when the psychologist's evaluation comes back, it says there is no evidence of dementia. Instead, it directly raises the possibility that Steve is a victim of elder abuse. Still, though Steve has been in jail for a couple of months now, the district attorney doesn't go down without a fight. It's the DA that kept pushing. The DA at that point was uh, adamant that the Avilas were credible witnesses, is what her words were. I know that the DA's office here, you know, they stick to their guns, I guess you could say. The DA's office is there to protect the victims or to be voices for the victims. There are victims out there. I just think that in this case, they had the wrong, the DA's office had the wrong victim. Eventually, three months after his incarceration, the public defender's office submits a 72-page motion for his release. It details everything. The real estate records, the car accident, the psychological exam, the money. And the judge agrees. Steve is free to go almost immediately. As he walks out of the jail with help from a walker, Mara is struck by how different he appears than he did on their first meeting. Initially, when I first seen Mr. Steele, and I, you know, I told you he walked in with the walker and stuff like that, he seemed very fragile. It's hard to explain it. And what I could say is from the time that I seen him in there, when he first was in there to the day that he was released, it was, it was a big difference. 
going in there, you know, he wasn't, he, I, I'm not a doctor, so I can't say he was like malnutrition or anything like that, but I kind of think he was. So I don't know if that affected his memory. I don't know if medical things that he was going through, if that caused anything, any of those kinds of issues. And just to be clear, it sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to complete your thought to make sure I understood it, that after being in jail for three months, he actually looked healthier. Yes. So whatever conditions he was living under, jail was better. Yes. I That's honestly so think terrible. that, I hate to say it, but that I feel like if he would have stayed in the same situation that he was then, I don't think he would be here now. Another big difference? Steve Steele has a smile on his face. Yes, I can't explain, I guess, the joy. Like, th that day, that's the day that I seen him. Like I said, from the day that I seen him the first day in jail to that day, there was, I can't put it really in words, but the, the, the joy in his face, the color of his skin, like, he was, he was different. It, it must have been amazing for him to have you believe him. I'm sure. I don't know. I, I guess I've never really asked him. Mm. I know that he was thankful. We did not hug because I was working. <laughs> but I don't think he could find the word. I don't think he found the words to... I, I know that he was thankful. And I know, he, I know he did tell me I would give you a hug if you weren't working or something like that. Um, oh, my God. That's very sweet. <laughs> yeah. Um, he wanted to, I, you could tell, but yeah, it warms your heart. If, if that's the way I could explain it. Like it warmed my heart. But now that Steve Steele is free, he has nowhere to go. He can't go home. The Avalas are living there. They legally own his home. His financial accounts are entangled with the Avalas. His annuity is gone. All his money is gone. So what happens to Steve Steele and his caregivers next? That's next week on The Perfect Scam. If you have been targeted by a scam or fraud, you are not alone. Call the AARP Fraud Watch Network helpline at 877-908-3360. Their trained fraud specialists can provide you with free support and guidance on what to do next. Thank you to our team of scam busters, executive producer Julie Getz, producer Brooke Ellis, associate producer and researcher Megan DeMagnus, and of course, our audio engineer Julio Gonzalez. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For AARP's The Perfect Scam, I'm Bob Sullivan. <laughs>